0: Section 2 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Cicilla, Columbus, Ohio. Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. Section 2 Boule de Suif, Part 2. Monsieur and Madame Follenvie dined at the end of the table. The man, wheezing like a broken down locomotive, was too short winded to talk when he was eating. But the wife was not silent a moment. She told how the Prussians had impressed her on their arrival, what they did, what they said, execrating them in the first place because they cost her money, and in the second because she had two sons in the army. She addressed herself principally to the countess, flattered at the opportunity of talking to a lady of quality. Then she lowered her voice and began to broach delicate subjects. Her husband interrupted her from time to time, saying, You would do well to hold your tongue, Madame Follinvie. But she took no notice of him and went on. "'Yes, madame, these Germans do nothing but eat potatoes and pork and then pork and potatoes. "'And don't imagine for a moment that they are clean. No, indeed. "'And if only you saw them drilling for hours, indeed for days together. "'They all collect in a field, then they do nothing but march backward and forward and wheel this way and that. "'If only they would cultivate the land or remain at home and work on their high roads. "'Really, madame, these soldiers are of no earthly use. "'Poor people have to feed and keep them, only in order that they may learn how to kill.' True, I am only an old woman with no education, but when I see them wearing themselves out marching about from morning till night, I say to myself, when there are people who make discoveries that are of use to people, why should others take so much trouble to do harm? Really now, isn't it a terrible thing to kill people, whether they are Prussians or English or Poles or French? If we revenge ourselves on anyone who injures us, we do wrong, and we are punished for it. But when our sons are shot down like partridges, that is all right, and decorations are given to the man who kills the most. No, indeed, I shall never be able to understand it. Cornudet raised his voice. War is a barbarous proceeding when we attack a peaceful neighbor, but it is a sacred duty when undertaken in defense of one's country. The old woman looked down. Yes, it's another matter when one acts in self-defense, but would it not be better to kill all the kings, seeing that they make war just to amuse themselves? Cornudet's eyes kindled. Bravo, citizens, he said. Monsieur Carole was reflecting profoundly although an ardent admirer of great generals the peasant woman's sturdy common sense made him reflect on the wealth which might accrue to a country by the employment of so many idle hands now maintained at a great expense of so much unproductive force if they were employed in those great industrial enterprises which it will take centuries to complete but loiseau leaving his seat went over to the innkeeper and began chatting in a low voice the big man chuckled coughed sputtered his enormous carcass shook with merriment at the pleasantries of the other and he ended by buying six casks of claret from Loiseau to be delivered in spring, after the departure of the Prussians. The moment supper was over, everyone went to bed worn out with fatigue. But Loiseau, who had been making his observations on the sly, sent his wife to bed and amused himself by placing first his ear, then his eye to the bedroom keyhole, in order to discover what he called the mysteries of the corridor. At the end of about an hour he heard a rustling peeped out quickly and caught sight of boule de suif looking more rotund than ever in a dressing gown of blue cashmere trimmed with white lace she held a candle in her hand and directed her steps to the numbered door at the end of the corridor but one of the side doors was partly opened and when at the end of a few minutes she returned cornudet in his shirt sleeves followed her they spoke in low tones then stopped short boule de suif seemed to be stoutly denying him admission to her room Unfortunately, Loiseau could not at first hear what they said, but toward the end of the conversation they raised their voices and he caught a few words. Cornudet was loudly insistent. "'How silly you are! What does it matter to you?' he said. She seemed indignant and replied, "'No, my good man, there are times when one does not do that sort of thing. Besides, in this place it would be shameful.' Apparently he did not understand and asked the reason. Then she lost her temper and her caution, and raising her voice still higher, said, "'Why? Can't you understand why?' when there are Prussians in the house, perhaps even in the very next room. He was silent. The patriotic shame of this wanton, who would not suffer herself to be caressed in the neighborhood of the enemy, must have roused his dormant dignity, for after bestowing on her a simple kiss, he crept softly back to his room. Loiseau, much edified, capered round the bedroom before taking his place beside his slumbering spouse. Then silence reigned throughout the house, but soon there arose from some remote part, it might easily have been either cellar or attic, a stertorous, monotonous, regular snoring, a dull, prolonged rumbling, varied by tremors like those of a boiler under pressure of steam, Monsieur Follenvie had gone to sleep. As they had decided on starting at eight o'clock the next morning, everyone was in the kitchen at that hour, but the coach, its roof covered with snow, stood by itself in the middle of the yard, without either horses or driver. They sought the latter in the stables, coach houses, and barns, but in vain. So the men of the party resolved to scour the country for him, and sallied forth. They found themselves in the square with the church at the farther side, and to right and left low-roofed houses where there were some Prussian soldiers. The first soldier they saw was peeling potatoes. The second, farther on, was washing out a barber shop. Another, bearded to the eyes, was fondling a crying infant and dandling it on his knees to quiet it, and the stout peasant women, whose menfolk were for the most part at the war, were, by means of signs, telling their obedient conquerors what work they were to do. Chop wood, prepare soup, grind coffee, One of them was even doing the washing for his hostess, an infirm old grandmother. The count, astonished at what he saw, questioned the beetle who was coming out of the presbytery. The old man answered, "'Oh, those men are not at all a bad sort. They're not Prussians, I am told. They come from somewhere farther off. I don't exactly know where. And they have all left wives and children behind them. They are not fond of war either, you may be sure. I am sure they are mourning for the men where they come from, just as we do here. And the war causes them just as much unhappiness as it does us.' "'As a matter of fact, things are not so very bad here just now, "'because the soldiers do no harm "'and work just as if they were in their own homes. "'You see, poor folk always help one another. "'It is the great ones of this world who make war.' "'Cornudet, indignant at the friendly understanding "'established between conquerors and conquered, "'withdrew, preferring to shut himself up in the inn. "'They are repeopling the country,' jested Loiseau. "'They are undoing the harm they have done,' "'said Monsieur Kerlemadon gravely. "'But they could not find the coach driver.' At last he was discovered in the village cafe, fraternizing cordially with the officer's orderly. "'Were you not told to harness the horses at eight o'clock?' demanded the count. "'Oh, yes, but I've had different orders since.' "'What orders?' "'Not to harness at all.' "'Who gave you such orders?' "'Why, the Prussian officer.' "'But why?' "'I don't know. Go and ask him. I am forbidden to harness the horses, so I don't harness them. That's all.' "'Did he tell you so himself?' "'No, sir. The innkeeper gave me the order from him.' When? Last evening, just as I was going to bed. The three men returned in a very uneasy frame of mind. They asked for Monsieur follin but the servant replied that on account of his asthma, he never got up before ten o'clock. They were strictly forbidden to rouse him earlier, except in case of fire. They wished to see the officer, but that also was impossible, although he lodged in the inn. Monsieur follin alone was authorized to interview him on civil matters, so they waited. The women returned to their rooms and occupied themselves with trivial matters. Cornudet settled down beside the tall kitchen fireplace before a blazing fire. He had a small table and a jug of beer placed beside him, and he smoked his pipe, a pipe which enjoyed among Democrats a consideration almost equal to his own, as though it had served its country in serving Cornudet. It was a fine meerschaum, admirably colored to a black the shade of its owner's teeth, but sweet-smelling, gracefully curved, at home in its master's hand, and completing his physiognomy. And Cornadet sat motionless, his eyes focused now on the dancing flames, now on the froth which crowned his beer, and after each draught he passed his long thin fingers with an air of satisfaction through his long greasy hair as he sucked the foam from his mustache. Boiseau, under pretense of stretching his legs, went out to see if he could sell wine to the country dealers. The count and manufacturer began to talk politics. They forecast the future of France. One believed in the Orléans dynasty, the other in an unknown savior a hero who should rise up in the last extremity a Du Guesclin, perhaps a joan of arc or another napoleon the ah if only the prince imperial were not so young cornudet listening to them smiled like a man who holds the keys of destiny in his hands his pipe perfumed the whole kitchen as the clock struck ten Monsieur follenvie appeared he was immediately surrounded and questioned but could only repeat three or four times in succession and without variation the words the officer said to me just like this Monsieur follin you will forbid them to harness up the coach for those travelers tomorrow. They are not to start without an order from me, you hear? That is sufficient. Then they asked to see the officer. The count sent him his card, on which Monsieur Kerlemadon also inscribed his name and titles. The Prussians sent word that the two men would be admitted to see him after his luncheon, that is to say, about one o'clock. The ladies reappeared, and they all ate a little, in spite of their anxiety. Boule de Suif appeared ill and very much worried. They were finishing their coffee when the orderly came to fetch the gentlemen. Loiseau joined the other two, but when they tried to get Cornudet to accompany them by way of adding greater solemnity to the occasion, he declared proudly that he would never have anything to do with the Germans, and, resuming his seat in the chimney corner, he called for another jug of beer. The three men went upstairs and were ushered into the best room in the inn, where the officer received them, lolling at his ease in an armchair, his feet on the mantelpiece, smoking a long porcelain pipe, and enveloped in a gorgeous dressing gown, doubtless stolen from the deserted dwelling of some citizen, destitute of taste and dress. He neither rose, greeted them, nor even glanced in their direction. He afforded a fine example of that insolence of bearing which seems natural to the victorious soldier. After a lapse of a few moments, he said in his halting French, "'What do you want?' "'We wish to start on our journey,' said the Count. "'No.' "'May I ask the reason of your refusal?' "'Because I don't choose.' I would respectfully call your attention, monsieur, to the fact that your general in command gave us a permit to proceed to Dieppe, and I do not think we have done anything to deserve this harshness at your hands. I don't choose, that's all. You may go. They bowed and retired. The afternoon was wretched. They could not understand the caprice of this German, and the strangest ideas came into their heads. They all congregated in the kitchen and talked about the subject to death, imagining all kinds of unlikely things. Perhaps they were to be kept as hostages. But for what reason? Or to be extradited as prisoners of war? Or possibly they were to be held for ransom? They were panic-stricken at this last supposition. The richest among them were the most alarmed, seeing themselves forced to empty bags of gold into the insolent soldiers' hands in order to buy back their lives. They racked their brains for plausible lies whereby they might conceal the fact that they were rich and pass themselves off as poor. Very poor. Blazo took off his watch chain and put it in his pocket. The approach of night increased their apprehension. The lamp was lighted, and as it wanted yet two hours to dinner, Madame Loiseau proposed a game of Trente. et an. It would distract their thoughts. The rest agreed, and Cornudet himself joined the party, first putting out his pipe for politeness' sake. The count shuffled the cards, dealt, and Boule de Suif had 31 to start with. Soon the interest of the game assuaged the anxiety of the players, but Cornudet noticed that Loiseau and his wife were in league to cheat. They were about to sit down to dinner when Monsieur Follenvie appeared, and in his grating voice announced, the Prussian officer sends to ask Mademoiselle Elizabeth Rousset if she has changed her mind yet. Boule de Suif stood still, pale as death. Then, suddenly turning crimson with anger, she gasped out, Kindly tell that scoundrel, that cur, that carrion of a Prussian, that I will never consent. You understand? Never, never, never. The fat innkeeper left the room. Then Boule de Suif was surrounded, questioned, and treated on all sides to reveal the mystery of her visit to the officer. She refused at first, but her wrath soon got the better of her. "'What does he want? He wants to make me his mistress!' she cried. No one was shocked at the word, so great was the general indignation. Cornudet broke his jug as he banged it down on the table. A loud outcry arose against this base soldier. All were furious. They drew together in common resistance against the foe, as if some part of the sacrifice exacted of Suif had been demanded of each. The Count declared, with supreme disgust, that those people behaved like ancient barbarians. The women, above all, manifested a lively and tender sympathy for Boule de Suif. The nuns, who appeared only at meals, cast down their eyes and said nothing. They dined, however, as soon as the first indignant outburst had subsided, but they spoke little and thought much. The ladies went to bed early, and the men, having lighted their pipes, proposed a game of a in which Monsieur Fallenvie was invited to join, the travelers hoping to question him skilfully as to the best means of vanquishing the officer's obduracy. But he thought of nothing but his cards, would listen to nothing, reply to nothing, and repeated time after time, "'Attend to the game, gentlemen, attend to the game!' So absorbed was his attention that he even forgot to expectorate. The consequence was that his chest gave forth rumbling sounds like those of an organ. His wheezing lungs struck every note of the asthmatic scale, from deep hollow tones to a shrill hoarse piping resembling that of a young cock trying to crow. He refused to go to bed when his wife, overcome with sleep, came to fetch him, so she went off alone, for she was an early bird, always up with the sun, while he was addicted to late hours, ever ready to spend the night with his friends. He merely said, Put my eggnog by the fire, and went on with the game. When the other men saw that nothing was to be got out of him, they declared it was time to retire, and each sought his bed. They rose fairly early the next morning with a vague hope of being allowed to start, a greater desire than ever to do so, and a terror at having to spend another day in this wretched little inn. Alas, the horses remained in the stable, the driver was invisible. They spent their time for want of something better to do in wandering around the coach. Luncheon was a gloomy affair, and there was a general coolness toward Boule de Suif, for night, which brings counsel, had somewhat modified the judgment of her companions. In the cold light of morning, they almost bore a grudge against the girl for not having secretly sought out the Prussian, that the rest of the party might receive a joyful surprise when they awoke. What more simple? Besides, who would have been the wiser? She might have saved appearances by telling the officer that she had taken pity on their distress. Such a step would be of so little consequence to her. But no one has yet confessed to such thoughts. In the afternoon, seeing that they were all bored to death, the count proposed a walk in the neighborhood of the village. Each one wrapped himself up well, and the little party set out, leaving behind only Cornidae, who preferred to sit over the fire, and the two nuns, who were in the habit of spending their day in the church or at the presbytery. The cold, which grew more intense each day, almost froze the noses and ears of the pedestrians. Their feet began to pain them so that each step was a penance, and when they reached the open country, it looked so mournful and depressing in its limitless mantle of white that they all hastily retraced their steps, with bodies benumbed and hearts heavy. The four women walked in front, and the three men followed a little in the rear. Loiseau, who saw perfectly well how matters stood, asked suddenly if that trollop were going to keep them waiting much longer in this godforsaken spot. The count, always courteous, replied that they could not exact so painful a sacrifice from any woman and that the first move must come from herself. Monsieur Kerlemadon remarked that if the French, as they talked of doing, made a counterattack by way of Dieppe, their encounter with the enemy must inevitably take place at Tote. This reflection made the other two anxious. Supposing we escape on foot, said Loiseau. The count shrugged his shoulders. How can you think of such a thing in this snow? And with our wives? Besides, we should be pursued at once, overtaken in ten minutes, and brought back as prisoners at the mercy of the soldiery. That was true enough. They were silent. The ladies talked of dress, but a certain constraint seemed to prevail among them. Suddenly, at the end of the street, the officer appeared. His tall, wasp-like, uniformed figure was outlined against the snow which bounded the horizon, and he walked, knees apart, with that motion peculiar to soldiers, who are always anxious not to soil their carefully polished boots. He bowed as he passed the ladies, then glanced scornfully at the men, who had sufficient dignity not to raise their hats, though Loiseau made a movement to do so. Boule de Suif flushed crimson to the ears, and the three married women felt unutterably humiliated at being met thus by the soldier in company with the girl whom he had treated with such scant ceremony. Then they began to talk about him, his figure, and his face. Madame Carole Madon, who had known many officers and judged them as a connoisseur, thought him not at all bad-looking. She even regretted that he was not a Frenchman, because in that case he would have made a very handsome hussar, with whom all the women would have assuredly fallen in love. When they were once more within doors they did not know what to do with themselves sharp words even were exchanged apropos of the merest trifles the silent dinner was quickly over and each one went to bed early in the hope of sleeping and thus killing time they came down next morning with tired faces and irritable tempers the women scarcely spoke to boule de suif. a church bell summoned the faithful to a baptism boule de suif had a child being brought up by peasants at yve She did not see him once a year, and never thought of him, but the idea of a child who was about to be baptized induced a sudden wave of tenderness for her own, and she insisted on being present at the ceremony. As soon as she had gone out, the rest of the company looked at one another, and then drew their chairs together, for they realized that they must decide on some course of action. Loiseau had an inspiration. He proposed that they should ask the officer to detain Boule de Suif only, and to let the rest depart on their way. Monsieur Follenvie was entrusted with this commission, but he returned to them almost immediately. The German, who knew human nature, had shown him the door. He intended to keep all the travelers until his condition had been complied with. Whereupon Madame Loiseau's vulgar temperament broke bounds. "'We're not going to die of old age here,' she cried. "'Since it's that vixen's trade to behave so with men, I don't see that she has any right to refuse one more than another. I may as well tell you she took any lovers she could get at ruin, even coachmen.' yes indeed madame the coachman at the prefecture i know it for a fact for he buys his wine of us and now that it is a question of getting us out of a difficulty she puts on virtuous airs the drab for my part i think this officer has behaved very well why there were three others of us any one of whom he would undoubtedly have preferred but no he contents himself with the girl who's common property he respects married women just think he is master here he had only to say i wish it and he might have taken us by force with the help of his soldiers. The two other women shuddered, the eyes of pretty Madame Carlamadon glistened, and she grew pale, as if the officer were indeed in the act of laying violent hands on her. The men, who had been discussing the subject among themselves, drew near. Loiseau, in a state of furious resentment, was for delivering up that miserable woman, bound hand and foot into the enemy's power. But the Count, descended from three generations of ambassadors, and endowed, moreover, with the lineaments of a diplomat, was in favor of more tactful measures we must persuade her he said then they laid their plans the women drew together they lowered their voices and the discussion became general each giving his or her opinion but the conversation was not in the least coarse the ladies in particular were adepts at delicate phrases and charming subtleties of expression to describe the most improper things a stranger would have understood none of their illusions so guarded was the language they employed but seeing that the thin veneer of modesty with which every woman of the world is furnished goes but a very little way below the surface, they began to rather enjoy this unedifying episode, and at bottom were hugely delighted, feeling themselves in their element, furthering the schemes of lawless love with the gusto of a gourmand cook who prepares supper for another. Their gaiety returned of itself, so amusing at last did this whole business seem to them. The count uttered several rather risky witticisms, but so tactfully were they said that his audience could not help smiling. Loiseau, in turn, made some considerably broader jokes, but no one took offense, and the thought expressed with such brutal directness by his wife was uppermost in the minds of all. Since it's the girl's trade, why should she refuse this man more than another? Dainty Madame Kerlamadon seemed to think even that in Boule de Suif's place, she would be less inclined to refuse him than another. The blockade was as carefully arranged as if they were investing a fortress. Each agreed on the role which he or she was to play, the arguments to be used, the maneuvers to be executed— They decided on the plan of campaign, the stratagems they were to employ, and the surprise attacks which were to reduce this human citadel and force it to receive the enemy within its walls. But Cornudet remained apart from the rest, taking no share in the plot. So absorbed was the attention of all that bult entrance was almost unnoticed, but the count whispered a gentle hush, which made the others look up. She was there. They suddenly stopped talking, and a vague embarrassment prevented them for a few moments from addressing her. But the countess, more practiced than the others in the wiles of the drawing room, asked her, Was the baptism interesting? The girl, still under the stress of emotion, told what she had seen and heard, described the faces, the attitudes of those present, and even the appearance of the church. She concluded with the words, It does one good to pray sometimes. Until lunchtime, the ladies contented themselves with being pleasant to her, so as to increase her confidence and make her amenable to their advice. As soon as they took their seats at table, the attack began. Firstly, they opened a vague conversation on the subject of self-sacrifice. Ancient examples were quoted, Judith and Holofernes, then, irrationally enough, Lucrece and Sextus, Cleopatra and the hostile generals whom she reduced to abject slavery by a surrender of her charms. Next was recounted an extraordinary story, born of the imagination of these ignorant millionaires, which told how the matrons of Rome seduced Hannibal, his lieutenants, and all of his mercenaries at Capua. They held up to admiration all those women who, from time to time, have arrested the victorious progress of conquerors, made of their bodies a field of battle, a means of ruling, a weapon, who have vanquished by their heroic caresses hideous or detested beings, and sacrificed their chastity to vengeance and devotion. All was said with due restraint and regard for propriety, the effect heightened now and then by an outburst of forced enthusiasm calculated to excite emulation a listener would have thought at last that the role of women on earth was a perpetual sacrifice of her person a continual abandonment of herself to the caprices of a hostile soldiery the two nuns seemed to hear nothing and to be lost in thought bull de suif was also silent during the whole afternoon she was left to her reflections but instead of calling her madame as they had done hitherto her companions addressed her simply as mademoiselle without exactly knowing why but as if desirous of making her descend a step in the esteem she had won and forcing her to realize her degraded position. Just as soup was served, Monsieur Follenvie reappeared, repeating his phrase of the evening before. The Prussian officer sends to ask if Mademoiselle Elizabeth Rousset has changed her mind. Boul answered briefly, no monsieur. But at dinner the coalition weakened. Loiseau made three unfortunate remarks. Each was cudgelling his brains for further examples of self-sacrifice and could find none, when the countess, possibly without ulterior motive, and moved simply by a vague desire to do homage to religion, began to question the elder of the two nuns on the most striking facts in the lives of the saints. Now it fell out that many of these had committed acts which would be crimes in our eyes, but the church readily pardons such deeds when they are accomplished for the glory of God or the good of mankind. This was a powerful argument, and the countess made the most of it. Then, whether by reason of a tacit understanding, a thinly-veiled act of complaisance, such as those who were the ecclesiastical habit excel in, or whether merely as a result of sheer stupidity, a stupidity admirably adapted to further their designs, the old nun rendered formidable aid to the conspirator. They had thought her timid. She proved herself bold, talkative, bigoted. She was not troubled by the ins and outs of casuistry. Her doctrines were as iron bars. Her faith knew no doubt. Her conscience, no scruples. She looked on Abraham's sacrifice as natural enough, for she herself would not have hesitated to kill both father and mother if she had received a divine order to that effect, and nothing, in her opinion, could displease the Lord, provided the motive were praiseworthy. The countess, putting to good use the consecrated authority of her unexpected ally, led her on to make a lengthy and edifying paraphrase of that axiom enunciated by a certain school of moralists. The ends justify the means. Then sister, she asked, You think God accepts all methods and pardons the act when the motive is pure? Undoubtedly, madame, an action reprehensible in itself often derives merit from the thought which inspires it. And in this wise, they talked on, fathoming the wishes of God, predicting his judgments, describing him as interested in matters which assuredly concern him but little. All was said with the utmost care and discretion, but every word uttered by the holy woman in her nun's garb weakened the indignant resistance of the courtesan. Then the conversation drifted somewhat, and the nun began to talk of the convents of her order, of her superior, of herself, and of her fragile little neighbor, Sister St. Nisaphore. They had been sent for her from Havre to nurse the hundreds of soldiers who were in hospitals, stricken with smallpox. She described these wretched invalids and their malady. And while they themselves were detained on their way by the caprices of the Prussian officer, scores of Frenchmen might be dying whom they otherwise would have saved. For the nursing of soldiers was the old nun's specialty. She had been in the Crimea, in Italy, in Austria, and as she told the story of her campaigns, she revealed herself as one of those holy sisters of the fife and drum who seemed designed by nature to follow camps, to snatch the wounded from amid the strife of battle, and to quell with a word, more effectually than any general, the rough and insubordinate troopers, a masterful woman, her seemed and pitted face itself an image of the devastations of war. No one spoke when she had finished for fear of spoiling the excellent effect of her words." As soon as the meal was over, the travelers retired to their rooms, whence they emerged the following day at a late hour of the morning. Luncheon passed off quietly. The seed sown the preceding evening was given time to germinate and bring forth fruit. In the afternoon, the countess proposed a walk. Then the count, as had been arranged beforehand, took Boules de Suif's arm and walked with her at some distance behind the rest. He began talking to her in that familiar, paternal, slightly contemptuous tone, which men of class adopt in speaking to women like her, calling her my dear child and talking down to her from the height of his exalted social position and stainless reputation. He came straight to the point. So you prefer to leave us here, exposed like yourself to all the violence which would follow on a repulse of the Prussian troops, rather than consent to surrender yourself, as you have done so many times in your life? The girl did not reply. He tried kindness, argument, sentiment. He still bore himself as count, even while adopting, when desirable, an attitude of gallantry— and making pretty, nay, even tender, speeches. He exalted the service she would render them, spoke of their gratitude, then suddenly, using the familiar thou, and you know, my dear, he could boast then of having made a conquest of a pretty girl such as he won't often find in his own country. Boule de Suif did not answer, and joined the rest of the party. As soon as they returned, she went to her room and was seen no more. The general anxiety was at its height. What would she do? If she still resisted, how awkward for them all. The dinner hour struck. They waited for her in vain. At last, Monsieur Fallenvie entered, announcing that Mademoiselle Rousset was not well, and that they might sit down to table. They all pricked up their ears. The Count drew near the innkeeper and whispered, "'Is it all right?' "'Yes.' Out of regard for propriety, he said nothing to his companions, but merely nodded slightly toward them. A great sigh of relief went up from all breasts. Every face was lighted up with joy.' "'By God!' shouted Loiseau. "'I'll stand champagne all round if there's any to be found in this place.' And great was Madame Loiseau's dismay when the proprietor came back with four bottles in his hands. They had all suddenly become talkative and merry. A lively joy filled all hearts. The Count seemed to perceive for the first time that Madame Carlemadon was charming. The manufacturer paid compliments to the Countess. The conversation was animated, sprightly, witty, and, although many of the jokes were in the worst possible taste, all the company were amused by them and none offended indignation being dependent like other emotions on surroundings and the mental atmosphere had gradually become filled with gross imaginings and unclean thoughts at dinner even the women indulged in discreetly worded illusions their glances were full of meaning they had drunk much the Count, who even in his moments of relaxation preserved a dignified demeanor, hit on a much appreciated comparison of the condition of things with the termination of a winter spent in icy solitude of the North Pole, and the joy of shipwrecked mariners, who at last perceive a southward track opening out before their eyes. Wazo, fairly in his element, rose to his feet, holding aloft a glass of champagne. "'I drink to our deliverance!' he shouted. All stood up and greeted the toast with acclamation— Even the two good sisters yielded to the solicitations of the ladies and consented to moisten their lips with a foaming wine, which they had never before tasted. They declared it was like effervescent lemonade, but with a pleasanter flavor. It is a pity, said Loiseau, that we have no piano. We might have had a quadrille. Cornudet had not spoken a word or made a movement. He seemed plunged in serious thought, and now and then tugged furiously at his great beard, as if trying to add still further to its length. At last, toward midnight, when they were about to separate, Loiseau, whose gait was far from steady, suddenly slapped him on the back, saying thickly, "'You're not jolly tonight. Why are you so silent, old man?' Cornudet threw back his head, cast one swift and scornful glance over the assemblage, and answered, "'I tell you all, you have done an infamous thing.' He rose, reached the door, and repeating, "'Infamous!' disappeared. A chill fell on all, L'Oiseau himself looked foolish and disconcerted for a moment, but soon recovered his aplomb and, writhing with laughter, exclaimed, ''Really? You are all too green for anything!'' Pressed for an explanation, he related the mysteries of the corridor, whereat his listeners were hugely amused. The ladies could hardly contain their delight. The Count and Monsieur Karel laughed till they cried. They could scarcely believe their ears. ''What? Are you sure?'' he wanted. ''I tell you, I saw it with my own eyes.'' And she refused?'' because the Prussian was in the next room. Surely you are mistaken. I swear I'm telling the truth. The count was choking with laughter. The manufacturer held his sides. Loiseau continued, so you may well imagine he doesn't think this evening's business at all amusing. And all three began to laugh again, choking, coughing, almost ill with merriment. And they all separated. But Madame Loiseau, who was nothing if not spiteful, remarked to her husband as they were on their way to bed that, that stuck-up little minx of a carolamadon had laughed on the wrong side of her mouth all the evening you know she said when women run after uniforms it's all the same to them whether the men who wear them are french or prussian it's perfectly sickening the next morning the snow showed dazzling white tinder under a clear winter sun the coach ready at last waited before the door while a flock of white pigeons with pink eyes spotted in the centers with black puffed out their white feathers and walked sedately between the legs of the six horses picking at the steaming manure. The driver, wrapped in his sheepskin coat, was smoking a pipe on the box, and all the passengers, radiant with delight at their approaching departure, were putting up provisions for the remainder of the journey. They were waiting only for Boule de Suif. At last she appeared. She seemed rather shamefaced and embarrassed, and advanced with timid step toward her companions, who, with one accord, turned aside as if they had not seen her. The count, with much dignity, took his wife by the arm and removed her from the unclean contact the girl stood still stupefied with astonishment then plucking up courage accosted the manufacturer's wife with a humble good morning madame to which the other replied merely with a slight and insolent nod accompanied by a look of outraged virtue everyone suddenly appeared extremely busy and kept as far from boule de Suif as if her skirts had been infected with some deadly disease then they hurried to the coach followed by the despised courtesan who arriving last of all silently took the place she had occupied during the first part of the journey The rest seemed neither to see her nor to know her, all save Madame Loiseau, who, glancing contemptuously in her direction, remarked half-aloud to her husband, What a mercy I'm not sitting beside that creature! The lumbering vehicle started on its way, and the journey began afresh. At first no one spoke. Boule de Suif dared not even to raise her eyes. She felt at once indignant with her neighbors, and humiliated at having yielded to the Prussian into whose arms they had so hypocritically cast her but the countess, turning toward Madame Carlamadon, soon broke the painful silence. I think you know Madame d'Etrell? she yeah, she's a friend of mine. Such a charming woman. Delightful, exceptionally talented, and an artist to the fingertips. She sings marvelously and draws to perfection. The manufacturer was chatting with the count amid the clatter of the window panes. A word of their conversation was now and then distinguishable. Shares, maturity, premium, time limit... Loiseau, who had abstracted from the inn, the time-worn pack of cards, thick with the grease of five years' contact with half-wiped-off tables, started a game of bezique with his wife. The good sisters, taking up simultaneously the long rosaries hanging from their waists, made the sign of the cross, and began to mutter in unison interminable prayers, their lips moving ever more and more swiftly, as if they sought which should outdistance the other in the race of orisons. From time to time they kissed a medal and crossed themselves anew, then resumed their rapid and unintelligible murmur. Cornudet sat still, lost in thought. At the end of three hours, Lazo gathered up the cards and remarked that he was hungry. His wife thereupon produced a parcel tied with string from which she extracted a piece of cold veal. This she cut into neat, thin slices, and both began to eat. We may as well do the same, said the countess. The rest agreed, and she unpacked the provisions which had been prepared for herself, the count, and the carolamidons. In one of those oval dishes, the lids of which are decorated with an earthenware hair, by way of showing that a game pie lies within, was a succulent delicacy consisting of the brown flesh of the game, larded with streaks of bacon and flavored with other meats chopped fine. A solid wedge of gruyere cheese, which had been wrapped in newspaper, bore the imprint, Items of News, on its rich, oily surface. The two good sisters brought to light a hunk of sausage smelling strongly of garlic, and Cornudet, plunging both hands at once into the capacious pockets of his loose overcoat, produced from one four hard-boiled eggs and from the other a crust of bread, He removed the shells, threw them into the straw beneath his feet, and began to devour the eggs, letting morsels of the bright yellow yolk fall in his mighty beard, where they looked like stars. Boule de Suif, in the haste and confusion of her departure, had not brought of anything, and stifling with rage, she watched all these people placidly eating. At first, ill-suppressed wrath shook her whole person, and she opened her lips to shriek the truth at them, to overwhelm them with a volley of insults, but she could not utter a word, so choked was she with indignation no one looked at her no one thought of her she felt herself swallowed up in the scorn of these virtuous creatures who had first sacrificed then rejected her as the thing useless and unclean then she remembered her big basket full of the good things they had so greedily devoured the two chickens coated in jelly the pies the pears four bottles of claret and her fury broke forth like a cord that is overstrained, and she was on the verge of tears she made terrible efforts at self-control drew herself up swallowed the sobs which choked her, but the tears rose nevertheless, shone at the brink of her eyelids, and soon two heavy drops coursed slowly down her cheeks. Others followed more quickly, like water filtering from a rock, and fell one after another on her rounded bosom. She sat upright with a fixed expression, her face pale and rigid, hoping desperately that no one saw her give way. But the countess noticed that she was weeping, and with a sign drew her husband's attention to the fact. He shrugged his shoulders as if to say, well, what of it? It's not my fault. Madame Loiseau chuckled triumphantly and murmured, She's weeping for shame. The two nuns had betaken themselves once more to their prayers, first wrapping the remainder of their sausage in paper. Then Cornudet, who was digesting his eggs, stretched his long legs under the opposite seat, threw himself back, folded his arms, smiled like a man who had just thought of a good joke, and began to whistle the Marseillaise the faces of his neighbors clouded the popular air evidently did not find favor with them they grew nervous and irritable and seemed ready to howl as a dog does at the sound of a barrel organ cornudet saw the discomfort he was creating and whistled the louder sometimes he even hummed the words amour sacré de la patrie conduit soutiens nos bras vengeurs liberté liberté chérie combatte avec des défenseurs The coach progressed more swiftly, the snow being harder now, and all the way to Dieppe during the long, dreary hours of the journey, first in the gathering dusk, then in the thick darkness, raising his voice above the rumbling of the vehicle, Cornudet continued with fierce obstinacy his vengeful and monotonous whistling, forcing his weary and exasperated hearers to follow the song from end to end, to recall every word of every line, as each was repeated over and over again with untiring persistency." and Bull de Suif still wept, and sometimes a sob she could not restrain was heard in the darkness between the two verses of the song. End of section two. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.